let me pray as, a, as we begin. Uh, Father God, I thank you so much that we have uh, the, the record that Mark has given us of uh, Jesus' life and his ministry. And I pray that as uh, we look through it this morning, you'll be showing us uh, your kingdom, uh, your, your power and your works. And I pray that you'd be uh, speaking to our hearts and minds this morning, that my heart and mind may be focused on you. Amen. So I don't know about you, I don't know where you've been over the summer, but presumably most of us have been travelling, uh, given the, the number of people who haven't been around in the West. Uh, and Wayne Chan has just returned from pig intestine soup. Uh, you know that's going to be mentioned every single, <laughs> every single sermon, uh, just, just for me. Um, in, in, so over in Singapore. But there's, all, there's a whole bunch of different places that... Um, that people end up travelling to. And a friend of mine actually just came back from a rather interesting place. Uh, it's a principality of Hutt River, some five or six hundred kilometres north of Perth. It's a little... I don't know, my, my cousins live on a, on a ranch in northwestern Queensland, so they call it a small farm. So it's about 75 kilometres square, uh, which in rural terms is a small farm. And it's a, it's a little area where uh, a guy and his family decided that they didn't want to be part of Australia anymore. They seceded from the Australian Commonwealth in 1970, declared independence, and said, we are our own principality. Uh, the father uh, set himself up as Prince Leonard, uh, the prince of Hutt River, uh, his own little kingdom. Now, that's, it's kind of a bit odd, isn't it? Like, you know, I don't go home and say, this is my castle, I am, my, I am a king, and I am going to use my own currency in this building. But at the same time, that's kind of what we do anyway. It's kind of what we do on a, on a daily basis. We try and set up our own little kingdoms, our own little areas of authority. We, we like to have power in our own domain. The problem with this is that our little fiefdoms, our little kingdoms that we have, often don't have as much authority as we think they do. So in the middle of last year, the reason why my friend went up to uh, the Prince Valley of Hutt River was to serve a tax notice. So he travelled across from Canberra, from uh, the ATO, over to, uh, over to Perth and then up to Hutt River um, to deliver a ruling Basically, because the Supreme Court judged that Prince Leonard owed $2.7 million in taxes to the Australian government over the last, what, 37 years of independence? The, and, and the justice in that ruling declared, anyone can declare themselves a sovereign nation in their own home, but they, they still cannot ignore the laws of Australia, or in this case, pay tax. We like to have our authority in various little areas of our life. And while we don't often go to the extreme of setting up our own kingdom with our own currency and declaring ourselves a prince or a king, we still try to do that in our own lives. The problem is we often don't have the authority to do that. We still live under Australian law. And I'd argue that we also live under a greater law than that. Because our, in, our great intentions of, of our kingdoms and things 
don't have any tangible reality on the way that we, uh, and a tangible authority on the way that we interact in the world. But this morning, in this passage, after uh, Jesus has called his first few disciples, we see him start setting about uh, bringing in what John has already declared, the kingdom of God is near, so repent and believe the good news. We get to see how the kingdom that God is bringing in through Jesus is different from our own attempts at kingdoms, our own little fiefdoms, our own little constructs that we have. And most importantly, we see it's not just an impotent kingdom, unable to do anything in the world, but also it's not like many of the other kingdoms that we see, which have lots of power, but drive them in different directions. We've already prayed about some of the world issues, which a lot of which are driven by our desire or our leaders' desire for authority and power. So in this passage, we get to see three things, three small little scenes that Mark has put together. And if you like, it's, it's sort of a, a day and a bit in the life of Jesus. Uh, the, the bit is because the ne- there's a very early the next morning, so you, you get a little bit extra. Um, we get to see more of that kingdom of God coming near and breaking in. We see three healings and three responses to those healings. And all of this, in Mark and style, happens immediately. He's a bit like, you know, the Michael Bay of gospel writers. If, it, if it's not blowing up, it's in your face and it's going to happen right away. So let's have a look at this day and a half in the life of Jesus. If you want, you can translate that into a Morgan Freeman or David Attenborough voice. Uh, think of it as planet Earth. So let's have a look at these three, three areas. The first area that we're going to look at is a scene in a synagogue uh, with a demon and looking at the authority of the king. Second one we're going to look at is the restoration of, of the kingdom, uh, the, tra- the transformation. And the third one we're going to look at is the trade that happens within this kingdom. So let's have a look first at this first scene in the synagogue. They go to Capernaum and the Sabbath comes and Jesus does what every good Jew of his, of his day does. If you're not near the temple, you go to your local synagogue. Now, Jesus begins to teach. And I think for us as 21st century uh, churchgoers, this is kind of expected. You know, it's Jesus. He's the one who has authority. He's a, he's a learned person. He should be doing what I'm doing now and getting up in front of people and teaching. But in the first century, the synagogue wasn't quite like that. It was far more of a group of, uh, of, of Jews gathering together. And there were, yes, there was a synagogue leader, but the synagogue leader doesn't have teaching responsibility. He has administrative responsibility. He's the one there to make sure that the grounds are clean, that there's coffee and tea after the, after the, the gathering, that you can, have, uh, you can book in your bar mitzvah when you need to. He's not the teacher. So instead, you have a whole bunch of lay, lay people who get up and they read part of Scripture and they try to explain it. So Jesus gets up, he reads part of Scripture, and in the other Gospels we get to hear that he reads from Isaiah. But here Mark just says, he began to teach and therefore the people were amazed at his teaching. No content of the teaching, but they're amazed. And so what we must understand is that whatever he is teaching... This is amazing in comparison 
uh, to what they're used to. Now, as I said, this isn't quite like my, my preaching here if I'm teaching in a class. It's not tied to a role that Jesus has in the synagogue. But neither is it also derived from authority of a role, because it goes on in a moment, and Mark says, he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The ones who normally have authority are being compared to as being, Jesus' teaching is amazing because it's so authoritative compared to the ones who have authority. It's not like Jesus has come and he's set himself up as a scribe or for a, perhaps a more modern example, a judge giving a pronouncement over a legal case where the teaching or the, the judging is tied to the role that he has as a judge, put on a wig, nice black robes, and therefore you have the authority to make the judgment, such as that uh, Prince Leonard has to pay $2.7 million in taxes. It's not that authority. Jesus stands up in the middle of a congregation and there is something about him, there's something intrinsic about him that just exudes authority. It doesn't, it's not about his role as a teacher, as someone who has had a stamp put on them, uh, which effectively like I was last week as I was deaconed. You know, it's not that sort of authority, but it's also not the, the sort of authority that comes by being appointed to something. There's been various explanations about how this works, uh, whether or not the scribes were authoritative and, th and, and things like that. But what we can tell from Mark's gospel is that Jesus' authority in teaching isn't actually given to him by human agency. Mark points out that it's come from God, it's come through his baptism, and so therefore the people are amazed. But then things get a little bit more amazing again. A man in the gathering, a little bit like this, gets up and cries out. Just then a man who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. Another one of those nice immediately from, uh, from Mark. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And so he addresses Jesus, as you would. You know, you've got this amazing person there, so you address them directly. And he does so using two names. The first one is, I think, what most people in the synagogue would recognize Jesus as. Essentially, his proper name, Jesus of Nazareth. It's like saying Chris of Kensington or Tim of the flats above the rec center. You know, it's, 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 a, it's the tight descriptor of who Jesus is. It's his proper name. But the second one, the Holy One of God, well, that seems to trigger something else. It expresses something deeper about Jesus. It's probably something that's unknown to the bystanders, those, who, those other people in the synagogue. But it's recognized by the demon at this point, by the one possessed by an impure spirit. The, the spirit here gets something that the rest of the people don't. But we do, as, as readers of Mark's gospel. As readers of Mark's gospel, we've known this for almost an entire chapter, that Jesus is the Holy One of God. 
But for those sitting in, the, in that synagogue on that first day of Jesus' t- public ministry, of his first day of Jesus' teaching, they're like, Holy One of God, well, I guess he's a good teacher. Is that what this, this guy means? But uh, the, Jesus goes on immediately and says, Be quiet, silence. Jesus says to the, to the man and, and to the spirit, come out of him. Now, I'm not entirely like, convinced that Jesus is silencing the man based on being called his, his proper name. Like, I know a lot of people react violently to being called all th- like their first full name, middle name, and surname. Uh, like, when, when, last week in the, in the cathedral as I was deaconed, I had to say, I, Christopher Allen Porter, that was kind of weird because that's what my mum would say to me when I'm in trouble. But I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. I think far more, far more importantly, Jesus is saying quiet because the Spirit is naming him as the Holy One of God. And it introduces this theme in Mark that we're, we're going to come back to later. It sort of unfolds throughout these three Little, little scenes. But this theme of silence, Jesus doesn't want people knowing who he is. Not fully anyway. We'll come back to that later. And so Jesus commands the spirit to leave. The spirit shakes the man around, comes out with a shriek, and leaves. As it should. The result? Further amazement. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What's this? A new teaching. And it comes with authority. He gives orders to improve your spirits and they obey him. Now, there's something to notice about amazement here. Um, my son and I think most kids who are about two or three learn that something is amazing. And, and Caleb likes to pronounce things that are amazing. Um, and for anyone who's a child of the 90s, you'd remember there's a, there was an old TV show called It's Amazing. Now, what I never get about that TV show, and to some degree Kale's pronouncements, is that in order to pronounce something amazing, you've got to know that something else is not, a, not quite as amazing as the thing that you're pronouncing amazing. Caleb has seen something for the first time, or for that matter, a really weird TV show, is amazing. What, are you, what is that being compared to? These, pe- these people here are declaring that Jesus' teaching is amazing. But that's not in isolation. It's like when you look at a sunset and you go, that is an amazing sunset. It's because we have a knowledge of all these other sunsets which are kind of grey and dim and drizzly. We're all Melburnians. Um, you know, if you haven't seen a, Mel- a dim and drizzly Melbourne sunset then I don't know if you've been looking out the window when the sun's going down. <laughs> but it means that when you get to see something that is amazing, you've got something to compare it to. You know how much better it is than what you're used to. And so these people in the synagogue, they hear Jesus teaching, they see the, the, the man who he was healed of, of a demon, and they go, this is amazing. Why? Well, it's because we get to, they know what it's like compared to the other kingdom that, that they're part of, the humdrum, the world that they live in. Jesus is so much more than that. But the other part of being amazing and being, and being in a comparison 
is that in order to compare something, it has to be at least comparable. You can't pronounce something as amazing if you've got nothing to compare it to. But also, if everything else is incomparable to it, it similarly is not amazing. And so we see, actually, that the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in is, is comparable to and comparable to the, the world that they live in. It's just greater and more than that. It's, it's even more wonderful. And so the news of the kingdom spreads. News about him, Jesus, and the kingdom he's bringing spreads quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And it should. That's what we should expect. I mean, can you imagine if this happened today with Twitter? How many follows would that, like, you know, and retweets would that happen in a 24-hour period? You know, this is the first century equivalent of Jesus going viral. The, the, king, the news of the kingdom spreads throughout Galilee. It's a whole region. It's, it's bigger than the kingdom of Hutt River, and it's spreading rapidly. And so we get, move into the next scene, the restoration that happens in the next kingdom, in the next part of the kingdom. They leave the synagogue and they go home. Appropriate. To the, and so Simon and Andrew, who he's just called earlier, essentially invite Jesus into their home. Simon's mother-in-law is sick in bed with a fever and they've just seen Jesus drive out an impure spirit what are they going to do? It'd be kind of cruel if they didn't tell Jesus about, them, about Simon's mother-in-law. And we get a bit more of a taste of what this new kingdom is like. They tell Jesus about the mother-in-law. Jesus goes and he touches her. And it sets the paradigm for most of the rest of the healings in uh, Mark's gospel. Jesus touches people. He reaches out to them where they are. He grabs her by the hand and helps her up. Straight away, the fever leaves her and she begins to, to wait or serve, serve them. Now, for a first century reader of Mark's gospel, this is kind of scandalous. You're going into a home of a sick person you're not only doing that, but you're reaching out and touching them, and they're a woman. In our 21st century, we're very sheltered from, from, the, from what scandal this would have caused uh, for people not only reading this, but present around Simon and Andrew's house. This is someone who is a respected teacher by this point. You know, they're all amazed at his teaching, going in and breaking all, all of the customs, all of the norms for a respected teacher. He touches a woman who's unclean, but correspondingly, he doesn't become unclean. Instead, the fever leaves her. I think instead that we in our 21st century get more shocked at the fact that Simon's mother-in-law, as soon as uh, the fever leaves her, she begins to, to wait on, or the, the word more literally is to serve them. That's probably what we get more shocked at. But again, this is a paradigm that, has, that is being introduced in Mark's gospel. It's a new way of thinking. That people who come into 
Jesus' kingdom, are so moved as to, to serve, to serve the people around them, to serve Jesus. And later on in Mark's gospel, we read uh, on Jesus' own lips the record of him saying that he is the one, the Son of Man, who has come not to, ser- not to be served, but to serve. This is a characteristic of the kingdom of God that Jesus introduces at this point. And in Mark, we see this over and over again. The proper response of one who has been touched and healed and brought into the kingdom by Jesus is to serve in that kingdom, serve the Christian fellowship, serve Jesus, uh, serve in all of, the, all of the ways that that happens. And so this is completely appropriate, but not only for the first century, but for our 21st century as well. And we'll keep moving through that in a moment. So we, later on that day, Jesus is having a big day at this point. After sunset, all of the people bring to Jesus the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town effectively gathers at the door. Well, a bit of hyperbole in, in this case, but all of the people who can't freely move around during the day because they're shut out from society, because they're sick, they're cast out from the community, are coming to the door to be healed. And, and so Jesus does this. He heals many who had various diseases and drives out demons. Think of these people as the ones that no one has, wants to have anything to do with. They're the ones who are coming out at night because they're, the culture wants them to be invisible during the day. They're shut out from society. They all get healed. Well, and what happens? Well, people are ecstatic, as they should be. There is restoration happening. This is the vision of the kingdom coming in that is from Isaiah. From Isaiah 9, the passage that everyone would have remembered that we read earlier. The one that everyone would know about. I'm about to knock over a drum. The one that everyone would know about is coming in. This is amazingly good news for the people because it means a restoration of things, of, of the kingdom. The, Gavin, do you want to duck back into Isaiah? Um, because it, it talks about the, the counselor coming, the, the restorer, the kingdom of God breaking in. Uh, two verses on, verse three. Because this is what they're expecting. Enlarging the nation, increasing joy, um, new, new harvest for people, warriors rejoicing because they've won in battle. This is what the people are expecting the kingdom of God to look like. And again here we see that the demons aren't allowed to speak. The people are getting a bit more of an idea of the, of the kingdom breaking in. But the demons are not allowed to speak. And Jesus would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. This, isn't, this is almost the opposite of our modern expression of, well, don't you know who I am? The self-entitled cry of someone in a coffee shop who has had their order um, mistaken. They've been given a latte instead of a flat white. Don't you know who I am? I'm an important person. Give me my order. Make it right. My kingdom is threatened. Or for perhaps more the world news side. I'm huge. I'm a big deal. 
This is the opposite of that. They know exactly who he is. These demons know who Jesus is, and that causes a problem. Because of this, Jesus rises early the next morning and goes off alone to pray. We'll be looking at how Jesus prays a bit more later in this series. But it's interesting to note that Jesus, confronted with this public recognition, withdraws. He withdraws to pray. But true to form, Simon, in his enthusiastic nature, um, and brings up all, all the other companions, gets up and goes to look for him. When they find Jesus, they exclaim, Everyone's looking for you! You're amazing! You've got a massive following. This is a big deal. You're, you know, you're, you're a rabbi. You're a teacher. You're, you're, going to be, you're not just going to be famous. You are famous. And it's interesting because often we think seeking is a good thing. Seeking after Jesus is absolutely a good thing. But in Mark's gospel... See how Jesus also has a negative connotation. Because and you get, and you, so I think you get that in, in the way that Simon approaches him. It, it's an, it seems to be almost an attempt to determine and control who Jesus is and, who, and, and the kingdom that is being brought in rather than to submit and follow to it. Enthusiasm in Mark's gospel is not always correlated with faith. It's often confused for faith. And in this case, and in other places, it seems to almost oppose faith. Because what Jesus says next is puzzling, I think, for the disciples. Jesus replies, let us go somewhere else, to the other nearby villages, so I can preach there also. Jesus says, I'm not going to have a local ministry of becoming famous in one town in Galilee, in Capernaum. We need to go elsewhere because the kingdom of God isn't just about being famous in one spot. This becomes a fulfillment of his mission in, in the first stage. It's a bit like the, the kingdom coming in is a bit like uh, the Star Trek uh, saying that's become a meme. It's a kingdom, Jim, just not as we know it. It's not quite as the disciples expected. Simon seems to be expecting this big inbreaking of a new kingdom in one spot, but instead they go somewhere else each time. You can imagine uh, what the disciples are thinking. Come on, Jesus, you're famous. In Capernaum, everyone's bringing the sick to you. Today, Capernaum, tomorrow, Galilee, then Jerusalem, Rome, and to the ends of the earth. It would be amazing. And truly it is. But not yet, is what Jesus is saying. And so, that theme of secrecy and silence, Jesus tells the demons to be quiet. He continues on in new places, is amplified even more. This secret that we've been led into as readers of Mark's gospel, knowing that Jesus is the Messiah right at the very beginning, is slowly dawning 
upon the, upon the disciples and upon the area around him in, in Galilee. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we see it here in these little vignettes and where even as the disciples get it almost bluntly explained to them that the kingdom doesn't look like what you think it looks like, doesn't look like a, a human earthly kingdom, they just don't get it. But I wonder how much we would have got at that time as well. Would we have understood that? Mark, in his gospel, wants to link that secrecy, the, the moving around the, and the secrecy to two things. Firstly, he links it with the theme of the servant in Isaiah. Uh, well, it was introduced in Isaiah 9 and then uh, expanded upon in Isaiah 42, um, 49, 52, and 53, where we, we see that the servant of the Lord is characterized by restraint, humility, quietness. It talks about the bruised reed he will not break. This isn't a kingdom like people are expecting it in Jesus' day because they're expecting a kingdom to come in and overthrow the Roman rulers. But Jesus is bringing in something that's completely different. But secondly, I think there's a, there's a, a dual reality there of what not just what the people expected the Messiah to be, but what their ideas of the, king, the ideal kingdom should be. Yes, we're going to overthrow the, the rulers, and we're going to be in power, and, and the, the, the kingdom of God will, will reign again like it did in, in David's era, uh, with a large border and, and good border protection, and uh, the people will flock to Jerusalem to, to see power and authority. This was, that was the ex expectation of Jesus' day. And even some Jewish groups took themselves off into the desert to live separate from society until the Messiah came in order to overthrow it so that they wouldn't be accidentally overthrown with all the other um, hoipoloi, the, the people living in and around Jerusalem at the time. But here Jesus knows people's hearts. He knows that not only is their expectations of the Messiah wrong, but their expectations of the kingdom are wrong as well. And he knows that because he knows that people's hearts are broken. That our expectations, our expectations of kingdom, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how uh, good they are, end up being tainted by our own sin, by our own grabs for power. They're all framed within our own concepts of right and wrong. And so while Jesus' kingdom that he's ushering in here is absolutely anchored in the Old Testament themes of justice and restoration and flourishing, and we see that throughout all the healings and the restorations, it just seems to, it seems to go more and further than what the people are expecting. And it absolutely does. And we'll see that as we move into our last scene. Because we see the radical nature of how this kingdom is going to be ushered in. So we move into this last scene. The, the trade 
that Jesus makes, the substitution with the leper. The final of these scenes begins, a a man with leprosy comes to him and begs him on his knees. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Now in the Old Testament, leprosy is seen as one of the prime, one one of the biggest divine punishments. And the cure of it can only be affected by God. In the, Old Te- so in the Old Testament stories, we see, uh, say, Naaman, who is covered with leprosy, goes to Elisha to be, to be healed. And he's expecting Elisha to heal him, but Elisha says, no, there is, a, there is only one who can heal leprosy. It's God. I can't do anything, but God can. And actually, the dread of, of leprosy and, and its contagion leads to people being pushed out of society. Uh, In Leviticus 13, we read that the person with leprosy and infectious disease must wear torn clothes and his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. And as long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone and he must live outside of the camp. That's how seriously leprosy was treated in that day. This man is cut off outside of the city. He's making a a daring, quite audacious approach to Jesus. He should be crying out, unclean, unclean, and going as far away from society as he can. But instead, he he has faith that Jesus can make him clean. He doesn't actually question whether or not Jesus can make him clean. He just says, if you are willing, you can do it. This leper's longing is profoundly human. It's not about God's ability to do things that we often doubt, but whether or not God is going to do it, whether if we ask. And Jesus' response, again, like his response to uh, Simon's mother-in-law, is actually no less scandalous for a first-century audience. The rabbis, the, the leaders of, of Jesus' day, would have seen this man coming and run a mile in the opposite direction. Just think about how most people react walking down Elizabeth Street if someone's asking for, for, a, for a dollar. This is cross the other side of the road, move up to Swanston Street, preferably even move up to, to Russell uh, and go across over there sort of territory for a first century Jew. But Jesus here is indignant. He's angry. He's, in, in, the, um, in the Greek, the word is literally, you know, the same word that is used of being punched in the guts and being so stomach angry that your stomach is churning about the issue. Jesus is that angry. Indignant's a soft word that we use to sort of Make it feel a bit nicer. Rather than turning away from the leper, Jesus turns towards him. But then he goes one step further. He touches him. The thing that Elisha never, never did with Naaman, Jesus reached out and touches this leper, bringing him into full contact with what would make him unclean, physical and ritual 
uncleanness. And for our day, when we see photos of Princess Diana um, touching lepers in lepers' colonies, I think that's a bit sanitized for us. We, leprosy doesn't have the same impact as it did in the first century. In Jesus' day, it removed all social, physical, and spiritual interaction for this man. But instead, Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. And importantly, critically, Jesus here is not infected by the leper's disease. But the leper is cleansed by Jesus' contagious holiness. The contagious disease does not infect Jesus, but Jesus' contagious holiness infects the leper. The leper is cleansed. Jesus is angry at sin at this point, which allows people to be cut off from society, cut off from their community, and Importantly, for this man who cannot get to the temple, cut off from God. But then Jesus seems to do something that's a little bit bizarre. Jesus sends him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anybody, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Don't tell anybody. Just, just go to the temple. Make, let them see that you're clean. This isn't actually about Jesus' reputation, his status, his authority, authority as perceived by the world. But it's a restor- about the restoration of those outside of community, outside of the kingdom, being brought in. But here we see the crux of the issue that Mark was hinting about earlier. This is the peak of why Jesus commands all of these demons to be quiet. Our own attempts at justice and mercy fall short. The the well-focused, well-intentioned, and our own personal representations of the community are never enough. Because for for the leper, his problem was twofold. He He had the skin disease that would eventually kill him, that caused exclusion from, the, from society, but also caused him exclusion from his community. So he goes back into his community, and they are inevitably going to ask him what has happened. Now, I want you to think, as we pause here for a second, and we see Jesus see the response from the community in a moment, What would our 21st century society do about such a a problem? We have people outside of a community who who are feeling like they're excluded from society. Well, I think that our best intention, our best effort would be to redefine the city bounds. Or say, I know you're included within our community. You can come in. This is justice after all. But it doesn't deal with the root of the problem. 
the leper would still then have a skin condition, a skin infection, that would kill him and likely infect the rest of the community and kill them all as well. It's well-intentioned, but it doesn't address the root of the problem. Instead, Jesus addresses that root of the problem, but then the response from the community highlights the issue at heart. The leper does what is profoundly normal for anyone healed of a major illness or a, or a terminal disease. He leaps down the street and tells the world. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news, the good news. And it is good. It's absolutely good news. If you were healed of cancer or of leprosy, you would go out leaping and bounding and can't keep it in. You can just see it, can't you? You know, the man goes out from uh, Carlton, walks down Ligon Street, and the people are like, ooh, there's that leper who lived out in the caves. What's he doing in town? Isn't he telling people to stay away? Get him out of the town. What does the leper do in response? I'm healed. I don't have to tell people to, that to stay away anymore. I'm back in the community. But here we see the cost the ultimate cost, and how this is transformed. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Jesus takes the leper's place outside of the city. Jesus starts this story inside the city. He starts the story as one ministering inside the city with with authority with holiness. The leper starts the story outside of the city. Jesus' contagious holiness is transferred to the leper. The leper's infection is not transferred to Jesus. But instead, Jesus ends up outside of the city and the leper inside. This is the ultimate transference of the kingdom. We like to think, and I think like the disciples did at the beginning, that we can bring in the kingdom on our own. That the kingdom of God, that the justice and the restoration and all of the good things of the kingdom can be brought in on our own terms. But it can't. It can only be brought in because Jesus has the authority to do that. We may try to redefine the city walls, but it's only Jesus who is willing to go outside of the city walls in order to bring us in. And here's the secret that Mark's been building to throughout these three scenes. The kingdom that is being brought in is all about substitution. Because ultimately, in the very final chapters of Mark, Jesus will again be outside of the city. But instead, he'll be hanging on a cross outside of the city while gaining access for everyone else to come into the the city of God. This is the kingdom he has come to usher in, the kingdom he brings near with authority and power throughout the gospel. This kingdom that absolutely does heal the sick, fix ailments, restore communities, bridge barriers, does all of these things and it goes one step further. It fixes the root of the problem. This kingdom restores people with God. But it only does that on Jesus' terms, on God's own terms, not on our terms. 
Because only Jesus can usher it in with a swap, with that substitution. Jesus takes our place outside of the city so that we may take our place in the ultimate city. It's that transfer that characterizes the kingdom of God that John has declared is, has come near. That kingdom of God that we see coming near in Jesus. It's the swap that transforms all of our own attempts at kingdom living, at kingdom building. It's that transfer that transforms our healing and justice into God's healing and justice. And in Mark's gospel, it is truly amazing. It is amazing because it is compared to our ideas of kingdom. And it's truly amazing because it is news that should be spread quickly. And it's why Mark tells us about it now. At the end of his first chapter, he reveals the ending of the entire gospel. Jesus goes out that we can come in. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that you have gone out for us, that we may come in, that you going out is the only way that you can change our hearts and bring us into your kingdom. Please do that for us and spread the good news of our of the change of heart that we have in Christ. Amen.